This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. Uh, David, we're back in the world of television, even though Emmy voting is over, um, because summer brings exciting television these days, uh, something that shouldn't surprise anyone these days. Um, But someone you and I have both been fans of forever has been doing some exciting TV work. So tell me about your conversation with Donald Gleason. Yes, Donald Gleason, Tony nominee, uh, star of many a rom-com and portrayer of many a uh, wide-eyed young man, <laughs> as you and I talked about uh, before the interview. Um, yeah, in this in this new show, it's a very different kind of role for him. Uh, it's called The Patient. It's from the creators of The Americans. It's an FX show, which is streaming on Hulu. Uh, and it's actually up today, so you can start watching it now. Mm. Um, he plays a serial killer who kidnaps his therapist, played by Steve Carell uh, through a sort of desperate attempt to try to get better. And that is the best and most concise way I can sell this show. I mean, I feel like we've seen a lot of people who have like cuddly images go dark to change things up. Steve Carell included, honestly. Um, But I I feel like Donald Gleason wouldn't go the like really obvious raving maniac route with a character like this. No. and, And that was immediately what we talked about. He has a lot of feelings and thoughts and concerns about the way serial killers are generally portrayed, particularly the kind of lurid fascination people have had with them on television, especially over the last few years. And he wanted, he was interested in the show because of the portrayal, both as written and the way he approaches it um, and how it differs from that. He's really nuanced and the show itself is really surprising at, at basically every turn in, in the way that it explores a an extremely fraught and complicated dynamic between these two men and but gradually loses the sort of shock of this initial um, premise and and does something subtler. Um, I don't know if you talked about this, but for fans of the Gleason uh, generation family at, at all, um, his dad, Brendan Gleason's got a big movie out this fall. So good times for the entire Gleason clan, it seems. yeah, they they've all worked together. and um I think in general, Donald seems to be, Exploring a lot of different kinds of stuff for himself, uh, which we, we went into. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time for him. Yeah. Well, let's hear your conversation with Donald Gleason. I'm here with Donald Gleason, star of the new FX series, uh, The Patient, in which he plays the patient in question. Hi, Donald. Hello. How are you doing? I, I'm very well. Uh, I love your work in this show. I 
I love the whole show, but you're obviously <laughs> getting to play a particular kind of character here. Um, so how does one decide to play a serial killer, as you do here? Um, well, I, I guess I guess uh, all the clues were in the scripts, really. The scripts were nearly all written by the time I even kind of came on board. So the shape of who he was, the extent of what we would see him do, and the kind of depths of you know how much we would see of him was already clear. So most of the clues were on the page, to be honest with you. I thought the scripts were wonderful. Hmm. Yeah, what 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 was it like collecting the kinds of details about Sam that there are in the show? I mean, we learn he's a foodie. He has some interesting uh, fashion eye choices, <laughs> let's say. Um, but but just generally, like how did how did he start to make sense to you? And when did it become clear that yeah, this is a character I, I could play and want to play? I, well, I mean, in terms of the reason to do it, I mean, first of all, Steve Carell was was already the lead of the series uh, when they kind of came to me to audition or to talk to them about it. And that was reason enough. Then it was the writers of the Americans. That's reason enough. But in the in terms of the character itself, I guess I, I worry about the mythologizing of the serial killer, of turning him into these uh, this kind of sexy, unknowable cipher who's fascinating and needs to be unpicked uh, in a way that's sort of attractive. I think I've become bored of that over the last few years and a little worried about the way that that goes. Mm -hmm. And in the reading of this, it just didn't seem to have any of it. There's a kind of a pathetic hole at the heart of Sam that he doesn't know why it's there and he doesn't know how to fill it. And I think that's probably much closer to the truth. Obviously, huge ego, huge selfishness, all that sort of stuff. But that was the stuff that drew me to like, oh, there's more to find out here and more ambiguity to play than the normal sort of really cool guy in sunglasses. And I wonder what he's thinking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought that was one of the really interesting things of this show because, you know, we all have, we all know the the archetypes of this kind of character in the in, in film mm. and TV. Um, we have our Hannibals, our Zodiac killers. Um, I'm curious in playing Sam, if, if you know, the, there is the side of it of not wanting to to lean into exactly what you're saying. But if you also did feel inspired by any of those past portrayals, particularly, or felt more inclined to maybe subvert them a little bit. Well, I mean, I love the film Zodiac. I think Zodiac is a masterpiece. And I suppose the way in that one that they sort of play with the notion of of that character being or not being the guy was like, that was the kind of really interesting thing in that. And, yeah. and you know his portrayal was stunning, but I, but I, I'm not sure I felt influenced by anybody when it came to this one. He seemed like just totally his own person. And I felt like really the, the thing to find was the links to me and how close he was to me and how close he could be to me and to work on that as opposed to just work on the differences. Um, the differences came strangely easily. Uh, it was actually making the finding out how close he was to me in lots of ways uh, but that this all sounds very dangerous and like maybe I'm uh, <laughs> maybe if I were to you know tilt the camera around you'd see some stuff you're not supposed to see but uh, that's not that's not the case uh, uh, do, do you know what I mean though like there's he's got self-loathing he's got all he's got a lot of human stuff going on uh, he also has like a lot of privilege that he's not aware of he's like he's got all these things in him he doesn't know how good he has it he thinks his life should be better for no mm -hmm. particular reason. He just, he, you know, and I think those are at moments in our life, whether that's when you're a teenager, whether that's whatever, I think you can tap into those feelings uh, and you can tap into ego and all those things as well. Like I find, that, I think a lot of the answers were on the page and a lot of the answers were in me. They were the places I looked the most. Mm -hmm. 
The Rendezvous Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Lebowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Chiona, being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Beyond the outrageous premise that we have here, uh, it is a, yeah. you look at the logline, it sounds pretty uh, intense. Um, but the show settles, to your point, into, I think, subtler, thornier psychological territory. And you kind of have to live in that space, both as an actor and um, w- the character does as well. So as you were as you were suggesting, uh, in terms of finding that stuff within yourself, what, what was that experience like of digging deep, essentially? It felt uh, remarkably freeing on this job. I've done intense jobs where it's intense all the time and sometimes with no reason. It's like everybody agrees to go intense in the hope that the show itself will be intense as a result. And I don't find that to be particularly useful. I think on this one, yes, you had to dig deep. Yes, you had to take it seriously. You had to, they're big old scenes. So you need to know them inside out when you turn up. So there's a lot of work on the lines and the dialect. But actually turning up on the day, not making any hard decisions and being open to what happened between myself and Steve and being open to, not even just being open to, but making yourself change the version you're offering from take to take to give options. That was where the uh, fun came from. And that, that was where the work came in, was continually pushing yourself to kind of give something new. Uh, that, but that didn't feel like, that felt very energizing. In a, in a funny sort of way. I found the whole experience kind of amazing. Finding a version of Sam that's more human, that's more shut off, that's more engaged, that's more manipulative. Offering up those options and letting them do whatever the hell they want in the edit then, that was where the fun was. It involved going deep into yourself, I suppose, as most good jobs do. But the people on it were really nice. I think that helps, you know. Uh, there was no unnecessary yeah. intensity. But then there were days that were, I mean, you, you went home tired. You felt like you left a piece of yourself there, you know? Yeah. It almost felt like at times a, a stage two-hander, except you get to do multiple takes. But um, did it feel that way for you? I know you've done, you've done a lot of stage, um, but it's really mostly you and Steve in a room figuring each other out a little bit. 
yes, it did feel like that. And yet the attack felt different. I actually came onto this having just done a play, um, like literally finished a play. I, I actually came onto this job straight off a play. I had just been doing a play for a few months that had been in my head for a few years. And it was a very intense play, very intense character, but he was a really good person. But I arrived onto this with all that play experience hmm. in my head. So going into this, I was aware that there were similarities with the play, long scenes, not too many people, not many distractions, sitting down opposite each other, getting through it. But the joy of the multiple take thing and of being able to manipulate each other and try something just once. And then if it doesn't work, go again and try something totally different. Or if it does work, try something totally different. That was new. And so I was kind of reveling in that, to be honest hmm. with you. That was kind of one of the really fun aspects of the job, having just come off a play that I did. You know, we did, I don't know how many performances, we did 70 performances of that play or whatever. I've done that a lot, right. you know? Yeah. So how did you find working with Stephen in that respect, um, given how, given exactly what you were saying, um, different ways of working? How did you, how did you find your, your path together? I loved every second of it. Uh, Steve's performance in this is very internal. Uh, he can't give too much away to Sam in any moment because Sam is volatile. And if Sam senses weakness, he, it angers him when he sees weakness in other people. So Strauss is aware of that. And so he's keeping a lot hidden. And yet within that, Steve found this beautiful way of still being able to keep the scenes totally alive, totally present, and still found a way of being able to push me around from his side of the camera. There's an interesting dynamic in it that I've got total physical freedom and he is totally physically chained down. But the power then, the power dynamic shifts because mentally he is much stronger and knows himself much better than Sam does. And so there were multiple levels of manipulation happening at any one moment. And Steve was just amazing at finding new ways to do it, new ways to kind of push each other around, bully each other make each other want or need or recoil. Uh, he was as wonderful as you would expect. Hmm. I wanted to zoom out a little bit uh, in terms of, you know, this moment playing this kind of character in your career. You've played many a, a wide-eyed, uh, let's say hopeful young man. And, <laughs> and I'm curious <laughs> if you've thought about expanding on that and, and you know, coming into a role like this, and you mentioned uh, the play Medicine, I believe is the one you're referring to. Um, Expanding on the kind, you know, have you thought about breaking out of that a little bit? Obviously, you've played a range of roles in your career, but this does feel like a, I mean, a new kind of challenge, let's say. Certainly a new kind of challenge, yes. I mean, uh, going to very different territory than, and different headspace than where I'd gone before. But at the same time, I've been really lucky to be able to kind of wash back and forth between different sorts of people. And some of those wide-eyed people that I've played before, which I agree with you about that, weirdly had more going on than was immediately obvious, like in things like Ex Machina, which we ended up talking about a couple of times just because they were also long scenes that were mostly two-handers mm -hmm. between two people where manipulation was key. You know, even that character had more going on than he was aware of, I think, at times, you know. So yep. it didn't feel divorced from the work that I had done before. It didn't feel separate. It felt new and exciting and fertile ground. But it, it didn't feel like, oh, I should do this to try and change things up. It felt like I should do this because this is a great character and this is Steve Carell and these are the people who did the Americans. They were the reasons to do it as opposed to 
anything else. That said, I loved and I loved going in. I, I always felt not happy, but I felt like satisfied going home in the evenings because you really got to purge a lot of stuff during the day, you know? Uh, I can imagine. When you're playing somebody, <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you're playing somebody who's happy all the time or who, where it's all about love, that's a beautiful thing. And you can go home happy because there's been a lot of love in the room all day. Yeah. But th this way of going home was different. It was like, no, no, if you want to get something out of your system, you can take one of the takes and really get it out of your system. And there was uh, <laughs> that was kind of a, a brilliant way to go home from work. Yeah. Another past project of yours that this surprisingly reminded me of was your Black Mirror episode with Haley Atwell. Um, mm. Because it's, again, two characters, for the most part, in a room, in a home, and something's a little off. And you kind of have to find your, obviously in that you're playing an artificial version of your character, but yeah. it's, it's, it, it, it reminded me of two characters who are not really connected, having to find their way with each other. Anyway, it's just a <laughs> stray observation. <laughs> I can, I can know, I can absolutely see that. And there, and there, there's something, there's something about the way that Sam works that is impossible to fully understand. He doesn't yep. understand it. And I think that's true of Ash in Black Mirror also, you know, like battling with the way that you are and not knowing what that is. I think like mm -hmm. not knowing what you're fighting in a way is a really, really difficult thing for the person who's living through it and for the person who has to deal with that also. So yeah, I can absolutely see the overlap there. Yeah. Um, you're a very funny actor and... I think of this show that that comes through in in particularly dark ways. Um, I guess it, broadly, I'm curious about playing a role like this, the balance between being scary at times, finding those moments for humor, and then the core of the show, which is this very human conversation uh, between these two men. And I suppose maybe I'm answering my own question because all those things are human, but with a character like this, how do you strike that balance? How do you find those different kinds of moments to paint a whole picture? That's really interesting. And having read the script, that was one of the things. It was like, oh my God, there are a million ways to go at this. And the Jays who, who wrote it and Chris, the kind of lead director who did the first few episodes and the last few episodes, they were very like, we don't want him to be scary. We don't want you to ever be scary or go at that because that's down the line. We want to see a real person struggling with something. And I would say, yeah, but like, he's also these other things as well. And they were certain about his struggle to get better being an honest struggle and not doubting that he wants to get better. And mm -hmm. so trying to just go with the humanity of that was difficult sometimes because there's also aspects of his personality which are deeply manipulative that I find really funny in a way, if you know what I mean, yeah. you know? And, and so... Yeah, I, I think that the answer was to just give them options with it and say, okay, and because Steve is so wonderful at knocking the ball back or about just doing it in a totally different way, he kind of elevates all that stuff anyway. So if you mm -hmm. start just down a slightly different path, you can just keep on going down that road uh, with Steve. And so one which felt a little funnier, you could really go at it and they can use all of that if they want, or none of it if they want. If you, if you just want somebody who seems quite normal in the scene, give them that. But behind all of it, I always felt a little bit, I always doubted Sam's genuineness. I always thought like he does want to get better, but why does he want to get better? Because he could just hand himself in. You know, he doesn't just hand himself in. He, he's still got huge ego, huge manipulation, huge selfishness. 
And so that was the thing. And I think that's where the humor comes from too. Like is just really dipping into that, really leaning into his own blind spot about himself. Yeah. With a project like this, I find like the, the notion of giving options really interesting. Uh, did you find either in the direction over the course of the making of the show or in, in the edit itself that they lean toward something you were doing more than you expected or that it, it went less in a direction than you thought it would? No, I, I think generally uh, from what I've seen, the, the choices have for the most part been towards the most normal, understated version of him mm -hmm. and leave the concern in the leave the concern in the um in the situation as opposed yep. to in the character i still think i hopefully he is still scary at times and all the rest of it but there were things i was concerned about about how alan how much would alan believe that he was a serial killer for example how much would alan be genuinely scared of him uh that i think th they were right they were just like no no just get rid of all that and trust in the setup and i think that is the yeah i think that's the way to do it you know uh, i'm i'm i was very happy with all the decisions they made. Yeah. It's not a choice that every show would make about a character like this, because sometimes you would want uh, the most dramatic, intense version. But yeah, the show seems to always make sure it's making the less sensational choice, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and also, because there are moments of violence in the show, I don't think that's a spoiler. I think it's in the air from the beginning. Yeah. You don't want to just always be expecting that when that stuff happens you want it to be genuinely shocking and not to have just seen it coming precisely and i think that, i think that the jays and, and chris and our other two wonderful directors really played with that well uh, that when it happens the ugliness of it if you had the ugliness in it all the time i don't think you would continue to watch i think it's important to forget about it almost and then really punch through with it so people then don't forget yeah. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Sam goes to occasionally violent, explosive places. Um, mm. What kind of research did you do? I mean, when when he starts going to those places, it's, it's, all, it's a little bit out of body almost in terms of mm. the fact that he says he cannot stop and the fact that he is doing incredibly dangerous, violent, abnormal things. How do you, how do you key into that as an actor who's not in those places necessarily you don't know my life uh no i, I think <laughs> i don't know what's i don't know what's I, going on outside of the zoom window it's true yeah exactly <laughs> so much so it's man it's, it's crazy in here no and um, i think thinking about it as a compulsion and about the inability to stop one's own compulsions talking about the compulsion and being able to be uh uh uh, specific with the words one chooses about that compulsion in a way makes you think that maybe you can control it or, you know, or makes another person think that you can control it if you can describe your compulsion accurately enough. But it doesn't stop it that when it happens, it takes over. And I think being really open, not jazzing myself up too much before those moments of thing, like really letting it just happen, taking an extra couple of beats to allow it to really go uh, was the play, was was the right decision, and I think the takes that have ended up in the show, for the most part, seem to be the ones. Every now and again, you do takes where at the end of it, you can't remember what happened during the take. Y you look down, and the actor you're meant to be in a battle with, or physically in a, a struggle with, 
is fine. So you know you've retained enough self-control to not step out the, outside the boundaries of safety, which is obviously very important. But you can't remember sort of how a bunch of stuff happened in there. Those are the ones that tended to end up in the show. And I think that's cool. It's like you have a little blackout and something bad happens and then you wake up. Uh, yeah, they're the ones that I remember. And I think the experience of that was probably similar for Sam. I think he probably just, it's like a little blackout and then you open your eyes and somebody's not there anymore, you know? Yep. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> quite literally in this case. Um, yeah, exactly. With with this show, you know, just uh, speaking about it, it sounds like there was a lot of opportunity to, to think things over, make different choices. For you in your career, having done a number of smaller scale projects like this that are more character driven while also being in Star Wars movies, um, is it a different kind of prep performance style between, I guess, big set piece kind of movies and, and this? Or have you found a more streamlined way of working between the different scales of projects you've done? No, I think every every project demands different things. Like a, a project like Star Wars demands the ability to pace yourself. Patience and belief in a, a bigger picture um, version of things. You have to lean on people a little bit more to understand where your place is, I think. Uh, a job like the patient, getting to go in every day, work with Linda and Emily and Steve, these just amazing actors around you, like just throwing yourself into the person in front of you, like having done the work so all the lines are in there, like you don't have to think about your lines. They're just in there. Work So you work on those weeks in advance and then just being able to sit opposite the person in front of you and just go, 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 and then go again, go again, go again. That is an absolutely different way of working. It's a different way of being tired. It's a different mm -hmm. way of expressing yourself. And... I loved every second of it. I mean, you know, if 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 you had to pick one way to work above all others, that would be my choice. I love that I get to yeah. do other stuff as well, and I wouldn't ever only want to do one thing. But if it had to be one thing, I think this way of working would be closest to my ideal way of working. Hmm. And is that the way that you'd say you grew up knowing? Like, was it more of a learning curve doing something like a Star Wars and figuring out how to prepare for that? I think so. I think so. And it's a big, it's a, it's a uh, big like stage to learn on. Um, yeah. A lot of people are watching you learn those things. So Harry Potter, I ha only had a couple of scenes in Harry Potter, but that was like, wow, a lot of people are going to see me try to learn how to do this kind of film. Because right. <laughs> there are not many films of that scale made. There's not like the tester version of Harry Potter that you can learn on. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I think that was like the first time on Harry Potter, there was 300 people on the set. I had just arrived off, I forget what I was doing the last job before Harry Potter, but there were like 10 people on set. And then you go on, there's 300 people there. The sets are massive. You've only got two lines in the scene, but you got to hit your mark and stick it and accent and all that stuff was like, yeah, that's a lot to try to calm your heart rate to be in the scene and not just panicking about the situation. With a job like The Patient, there's so much time when the camera's on that yeah. you can make a mistake and go, not go back, you, you always push through, but you can make a mistake, the director will come in, you can have a conversation and you can try again immediately. You don't have to wait for a half an hour for everything to be reset. That's a, yeah, really different way of working. I can, I can only imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> I, I know you said that around Star Wars, being more known, more recognizable felt a little scary. How has that evolved for you since then, having done so many different things, kinds of things since then, including like, you know, Next Machina is such a beloved, like cult kind of movie. All these different audiences, I feel like, now know who you are. You know, there's an aspect of it. The, the, the thing that I've tr always try and remember, like the story that I've told, but the one, like the one that I come back to in my head to remind myself that it's true, is that I've worked with Margot Robbie a few times and that she just never, she is so much more famous than I will ever be. She is so much more recognized in a totally different way. She's a woman. She gets a totally different type of, I don't know yeah. what the word is, but you know what I mean? Like scrutiny. Yeah, and absolutely. and she has never complained about it once. She gets on with her life. She's a brilliant life. She just takes all the good from it and maybe privately whatever i'm sure she must she must struggle with she's a person but she just moves on with it so i've i've just i try and remind myself that complaining about people recognizing you for work that for the most part people like is not a good complaint to have that's you know what i mean so i try to stick to yeah. that it is unusual i i'll tell you where i love it is um with kids so i did the peter rabbit movies i've done a couple things that of kids course, would be yeah. you know harry potter when kids Kind of record. I, I was just working on a job where a couple of children came in and they knew me from Peter Rabbit, and he was like, they called me Mr. McGregor, and it was <laughs> the most. It was absolutely amazing. That really made me happy. Mm -hmm. And then I did a movie called About Time that people really seemed to connect with. And in the last year, for whatever reason, that has absolutely exploded. People come to me about that film all the time, and it was yeah, I've noticed that, that was too. The, it's the early two thousand and teens or whatever that's called like that's when we made that film it's a long time ago it's probably 10 years ago so like that's an, but again it people really seem to like it in a way that makes they seem to enrich their lives in some way so yeah there's no i've been talking for ages about this sorry there's no complaints to be had any struggle with that is a personal thing that you just need to get over sure uh it is a strange thing though i i completely understand it um, it's bananas. <laughs> it's bananas. And if I start complaining, I'll never stop. But no, it's absolutely fine and everything's cool. <laughs> it's totally normal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't think any children are going to come up to you after the patient or for the patient. I hope they <laughs> if they do, their eyes will be like saucers and they'll never be the same again. So, yes, I would urge anybody listening with young children, do not watch this with your kids. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back next week with our regular roundtable conversation. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, new place at HWD. You can follow me at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. 
You can sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7201. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.